If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Did you know that Renaissance women used arsenic and mercury in their makeup, even though they knew they were poisonous? On today's podcast, Professor Jill Burke and Charlotte Hodgman are venturing into the realm of Renaissance beauty culture from cosmetic recipes to 16th century body anxieties, revealing that Renaissance women weren't all that different from us today. Before we kind of get get into the interview, perhaps you could just set out for us what the kind of ideal Renaissance woman looked like. So beauty ideals in the Renaissance are really narrow. The ideal woman has um, golden blonde, wavy hair, not straight but not curly, And the kind of dark blonde, it's not got to be too light and it's not got to be too dark. They have pale skin that's rosy with with rosy cheeks and rosy lips. And they're quite um, plump. So you wouldn't want a bony woman. And ideally, they'd have a kind of figure like a peach. So they'd have wider hips, smaller breasts and uh, quite plump thighs. They'd have very little body hair. They don't like body hair very much. Dark eyes. So even though they have blonde hair, dark eyes and arched dark eyebrows. So you don't want a lot of eyebrows either and kind of rosebud lips and um, very rounded uh, face and rounded cheeks. So it's basically the woman that is painted by a lot of um, Renaissance artists like Titian or Raphael. It's basically the woman that you see coming up again and again and again in these paintings. That's what real women uh, should also look like. So not expecting much then. <laughs> um, so, I mean, who was setting these ideals? Where did this, this this kind of image come from? Was it from these paintings? Yeah, the paintings were really important. But there's a real obsession with women's beauty in the 16th century in all sorts of sources. So you get it in poetry a lot or in particularly epic poetry, which people would read for fun of an evening. So um, you get minute descriptions of women's bodies in these kind of tales of daring do that were very popular at the time. You'd also get just poems that would uh, describe beautiful women in really minute detail and they'd be, be, you know, they'd be very repetitive and they'd all basically be the same. So there wasn't much scope for alternative uh, ideas about beauty. There was a little bit, but not much. But also um, medical texts used to equate beauty with health and actually with personality as well. So if you had the right colour hair, this golden blonde hair, it was associated with being quite obedient, 
quite passive and associated with being fertile. So looks and temperament and this kind of ideal beauty would also make you an ideal wife. Um, if you had dark, curly hair, pe- uh, there's, the assumption was that you'd be quite argumentative. <laughs> um, and were there actual kind of real life people um, that women aspired to look like? You know, do we have like the Kardashians of the, of oh, the Renaissance? Yes. Who, who, would they, <laughs> who would they have been? So you have the aristocratic ladies who are often um, described again in great detail and, and are really kind of public property. So in wedding processions and, and so on, you'd see them and you'd see all their really well turned out ladies in waiting. But there's also, this is also the period in Italy where courtesan culture starts. So the term courtesan uh, is coined in the 1490s. And through the 16th century, you get these famous um, women who are courtesans who basically um, make their living by being very beautiful, very cultured, very wonderful to be with, and men kind of vie for their affections. And so these women are also objects of of, of beauty and they're also painted and on prints and things like that. So these ideals of beauty are kind of very diffused throughout society. Were women of all classes expected to care about their appearance um, or was it just those with money? The expectation before this research was done was that only very aristocratic and upper class women would care about looking good in cosmetics and things like this and use cosmetics. But in fact, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that this is diffused through all levels of society in the marketplace, in in towns. Peasant women come up with um, beautification recipes as well. And this makes sense because often poorer women, the stakes are really high about what they look like because making a good marriage was so important for their life chances. So all women, it seems, particularly younger women, were expected to maintain a certain kind of look. And then married women were blamed for kind of letting themselves go if their husbands then went on to be adulterous. So there's pressure right through a woman's life cycle to look a certain way. Yeah, so it was very important then to look good. It was massively important to look good. It could be life-changing. So um, good-looking uh, women who are from a poorer family could make good marriage matches and, and have much better life chances if they met these beauty ideals. And one thing sort of reading through the book that struck me is kind of how similar the worries that women had about their appearance and how they looked is kind of to how we are today. Not a lot really has changed. There's one particular example that did make me laugh a bit and she was apologizing for looking fat in her painting and she apologized to, to the to the, the guy who it was sent to and I just thought I could just imagine somebody now saying oh I look a bit fat in that photo <laughs> it's I mean honestly this was astonishing I had no idea until I started this research and started reading these texts that people were worried about looking fat in the renaissance <laughs> it's not something that you think this is a a, a present day concern but Actually, it goes right back in time. And it's so Isabel, that was Isabella d'Este, who's most famous now for her art patronage. But also, she's got a massive lot of letters uh, left that she's written to various people, but was also worried about eating certain things because she'd put on weight or, you know, and she was constantly in the public eye. So it's understandable. But yeah, being too fat was quite an issue for the aristocrats. I think this was an aristocratic problem uh, mm. <laughs> in the later 15th and 16th centuries. And yeah, but other things too, women were worried about like looking older, looking too old, stretch marks after pregnancies, having grey hair, all this kind of stuff. Obviously in the Renaissance is thought about 
differently in a lot of ways, but often you're just startled, I've, you know, by how similar these concerns are. Did these kind of beauty ideals, do we see them changing throughout the Renaissance? And also, um, were they sort of different in Italy to how perhaps how they were in Germany um, and other places in Europe? So these beauty ideals with blonde hair and like a plump body and pale skin are diffused throughout most of Europe at this time. And actually from Spain to Britain, Germany, they're all fairly similar. Though there are some regional variations and some variations across time. So what in Italy would have been a medieval ideal with a much more big belly and much narrower features, that went out of fashion in Italy in the later 15th century for women, but stayed common in Germany later on. There's um, a change in the when you get to the beginning of 17th century, where there's a much greater diversity of hair colours that women wear, often quite in a quite rebellious way, because women are also interested in how they can use their appearances to kind of challenge some of these beauty conventions as well and to challenge the way that women are thought about. I think it's important to say, and I hope it's in my book, that women aren't just like passive. They don't just passively accept all this uh, all this stuff. A lot of them are actively working to challenge these ideas. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. And, and also, um, it wasn't necessarily a case of w- wanting to attract a husband and, and doing making themselves beautiful to attract men, was it? Oh, no. I mean, the thing is that that is an important element. But also, 
there's a lot of community in this in this beautification practices. So you get women coming together, you know, to have their hair done or to dye their hair or to exchange beauty recipes. And you get the sense that there's a lot of just camaraderie, a lot of invention, a lot of just chatting in, you know, a really important part of women's sociability is just, just chatting and being in a space that where, you know, where, where men aren't really allowed or expected and men don't really understand it. So there's a lot of resentment towards women as well for, for these practices of getting together and sharing these recipes. And this is a time when women had a pretty awful time a lot of, a lot of the time with men and were often the victims of violence and so on. And when, when we look at the kind of Renaissance paintings of these kind of classically beautiful women, um, it doesn't come across as if they're wearing makeup. But women did actually wear makeup at this time, didn't they? Absolutely. And the goal of most Renaissance makeup was to look natural, right? So, you know, like we have the natural look today and you don't want to look too made up. That was exactly the same in the Renaissance. So there's a pastiche of, you know, like you think of images of Elizabeth I, for example, or films with her in, and she's got loads of like white makeup plastered all over her face. Well, that was roundly laughed at in the Renaissance. So whether it's accurate or not is a bit of a bone of contention amongst Renaissance scholars. And most women wore makeup that were just aimed to make them look better. So you get an awful lot of um, things that we'd recognise today. So you get anti-wrinkle cream, moisturiser, toner, stuff designed to um, get rid of blemishes like spots or many other kind of skin conditions. And then you have makeup that's designed colour makeup like foundation and blusher, lip colour, eyebrow colour that's designed to look natural. And you've been doing a lot of work, haven't you, into these kind of recipes. Yes. Um, have you tried any of them yourself? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and how do they work? Yes. They do. I mean, that, that is the, 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 the big surprise of trying out these recipes. I should explain that there's thousands of beauty recipes that have come down to us from the 15th to the 17th centuries from all over Europe. And one of the things that we've been trying recently is just trying them out. And there's some recipes in, in my book as well that people can try out at home. And so we've been looking into recipes for face, what they call face waters, which are really nice perfumed waters uh, designed to clean or to, um, to what we call toners, uh, to tone your face. We've also made anti-wrinkle cream that actually feels really nice. When I go and give talks, I often bring some of the things that we've made. And the anti-wrinkle cream particularly, everyone's like, wow, <laughs> this really feels <laughs> like a face cream. So what's been interesting is, is how effective, and I've got colleagues who are doing this in, in the lab with chemists as well. Actually, a lot of the um, herbal products that Renaissance women used are still in use today. So things like chamomile for hair, um, lightning, mallow, not all awful lot of the herbal products are effective. And also feel, for instance, Renaissance women knew how to make moisturiser, right, at home, <laughs> that feels like a modern moisturiser. So... When I first started this research, I was thinking, oh, you know, these poor Renaissance women, they were slapping poison on their faces and didn't know what they're doing. And then at the end, I was like, oh, they knew much more than I do about how to just make some of these basic kind of hygiene and beauty treatments that we use every day. And where, where were these recipes coming from? Who, who was writing about them? It's really difficult to quite pinpoint exactly where they come from. A lot of women in this period weren't able to write 
you know, reading and writing was something that educated women might have been able to do, but the poorer women couldn't generally. And it's likely that there's a massive oral tradition of sharing these kinds of recipes between women. And this is picked up when printing starts um, in the late 15th century. By the early 16th century, when you when it gets cheaper, you start to get popular print. And people start to collect these beauty recipes and write them down in pamphlets and sell them back to, really, to, to the places that, you know, the women that, that came up with them in the first place. So you get a lot of these recipes in printed pamphlets that probably reflect an oral tradition. Some of them, though, come from classical, like really way back into Greek antiquity. There's long traditions of uh, people like Galen, medics as well. There's so doctors sometimes write beauty recipes as well. So they come from a lot of different places. And when you see the recipes, some have like really cheap ingredients like snail sliming <laughs> or, or, or like uh, pigeon droppings. And then there's really fancy ones with pearls and emeralds or, or whatever in the you know it's obviously just for the fancier ladies so obviously there were things that you could make yourself at home um where would you buy um perhaps more complicated cosmetics so you get these recipes you could make them at home um and often you'd make enough for several people it looks like a lot of these uh, amounts are quite large so you might make them for the whole household or you might sell them for a little few pennies to friends and, th- and so on and some women particularly poor women became well known for creating and inventing and tweaking recipes and so they'd sell those on the street or get their husbands to sell those on the street in marketplaces as kind of street hawkers or a lot of women just went to the apothecary and asked for specific remedies to be made up. And apothecaries in this in this period were mainly men, but there were a lot of um, convent apothecaries and some women apothecaries as well. Some people just made them at home, just like you'd cook for yourself at home. So these cosmetics and kind of basic medicines, like hygiene products, were made in the same way that you might cook. So sometimes you might buy some things, or sometimes you might ask for things to be made for you, or some things you'd make at home. So it was a mixture of all these things. How far did did women go to reach this beauty, these beauty ideals? Because obviously some things about yourself you just can't really change. Um, But did people go to kind of any extremes? Have you found any examples of that? Some of the substances that women used were poisonous and were known to be poisonous at the time. So they did use arsenic, for example, to whiten skin. It does work. But it's not very. It's not recommended. I wouldn't try it at home. <laughs> um, mercury was often also used. That was a very common ingredient in skin whitening creams, and it still is actually in some skin whitening creams. Mercury is still used again because it kills off the the top layer of skin cells, and so is effective. They were using both arsenic and mercury in medicine at this time. Or white lead was also another common one, and women knew that this stuff was not good for them, and that if they used a lot of it things like their teeth would fall out and they'd have, you know, really bad breath and things. Otherwise, um, for dieting, some of that was pretty extreme. They believed you should have a really miserable time to lose weight and don't sleep much and sleep on a hard board and things like that. Getting fatter was much more fun. You know, some women... They did have corsets and things as well. This is an era when corsets were just starting. And so they used to have quite stiff, rigid bosque, which is a kind of almost like a stick-like thing that you'd you'd put in between the breasts, which would go down to the top of the pubic bone. And they were believed to do all sorts of manner of terrible things to women's chances of getting pregnant, which of course is what the authorities really cared about. But they may have been quite uncomfortable to wear at the same time. And I saw a picture of a metal corset 
which looked like some sort of torture device. <laughs> These metal corsets were probably used to, well, they were probably used to straighten spines. Um, we're not absolutely sure how they were used, but there's a few of them in existence. And we know that Eleanor of Toledo, who was the Duchess of Florence in the 16th century, we know that she had many, many children in, a, in very few years, something like 14 pregnancies, not all of which came to term, and that she commissioned one of these iron corsets. Because I think, I mean, also they've shown that she had hardly any teeth because it must have taken the, all these repeated pregnancies for all these women must have really taken it out of them and had, you know, bad effects on their bones and their teeth, for example. So these iron corsets were actually there so that people could just keep this straight silhouette. <laughs> it looked rather painful. <laughs> Body hair is another interesting thing to discuss because uh, we've all probably seen pictures of the, the very, very high foreheads, mm. women plucking their, their foreheads, but Attitudes to body hair kind of went further than that, didn't they? They were actually linked to kind of witchcraft and, and things like that. So there is a difference in different parts of Europe between attitudes to body hair. In Italy and probably most of the countries that were on the Mediterranean, it was common uh, to remove um, body hair in the baths. So there's a lot of recipes for depilatories. So people would say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, Plucking body hair or or certainly they wouldn't shave would be bad, would be thought of to be bad for your skin and your hair. So they made these depilatories out of quicklime and arsenic generally. And the recipes are quite funny because they do say things like, you know, keep it on for as long as it takes you to say Hail Mary nine times and then take it off quickly or the skin will fall off, you know, or your flesh will fall off. Witches in Italy were completely shaved to get rid of their body hair. And this was so that they couldn't hide charms or amulets. And some of the witch trial sources are still really distressing to read, actually, <laughs> uh, the way that these women were treated. And probably because of that, there's this weird obsession with body hair in Germany. So early 16th century German paintings, particularly by Jura and Hans Baldung have women kind of staring in with mirrors at their pubic hair and a lot of kind of obsession with body hair and its removal because body hair removal in Germany is thought to be very shameful. So there's this strange relationship between this kind of like push-pull of revulsion and attraction when people look at women's bodies in this period, which again isn't is kind of related. You can still see the echoes of this happening now. What about when women got older? Were they still expected to maintain that kind of uh, youthful appearances and using cosmetics? Or was that kind of frowned upon as being something that only younger women should do? Well, it's complicated. It, it depends on the age. So after women were married, there's some sources that say, you know, you really need to keep looking good. Otherwise, your husband will leave you for other women and it will be your fault because no husband wants to have a wife who's ugly. I mean, this is basically the message. And that's quite a, that's an old message. It comes from Thomas Aquinas was the first person who basically said that wives should be able to use makeup to keep their husbands faithful. So there's that side of things. But older women were also ridiculed if they cared too much about what they looked like. And the idea is that you should really cover your hair and go off and, and pray. And that's what you should do uh, when you're older as well. And that, this is particularly true of widows. But of course, some people who were widowed were widowed quite young because women tended to get married at 16 to 18 and men tended to get married around the age of 30. So um, so some widows were maybe in their 20s 
and they'd either marry again or if they had enough wealth, and this is really common amongst aristocratic women, they wouldn't marry again and then they'd get to kind of rule the roost. And so you see a lot of women just not marrying again and then the evidence is that they do spend time thinking about their looks and, and using cosmetics. Mm. You mentioned earlier that women dyed their hair um, as well. How did they go about doing that? What would they have used to kind of perhaps change the colour of their hair or emphasise their sort of golden hair? Right. So Venetian women were particularly famous for bleaching their hair. And what they do is they'd um, go up to the roofs of their houses and they'd wear a special hat, uh, which was made of straw, uh, which shaded their face but had an empty crown. So the hair, you'd take your hair out through the crown and kind of spread it across the hat to catch the rays of the sun. And they put various substances on it. You know, some of these are plant substances. Some of them were things that they'd use to bleach fabrics. So were much more corrosive. I haven't tried those because um, a lot of them are quite dangerous. And they'd sit in the sun for like all day chatting with each other and getting their hair to be more golden. That was a really common hair dye. There's an awful story of a husband going up and dragging his wife away from one of these quite sociable occasions when all these women were sitting and having their hair bleached and then beating her because he didn't like her chatting with her friends. So that was obviously quite a common thing. But then some women would dye their hair red, much to the kind of distaste of some of the writers, like, why are you dyeing your hair red? Uh, Some women who had darker hair would use various substances, often often things like dye made from walnuts, for example, to make their hair darker again. But men would use hair dye as well. I was actually going to ask, were there ideals for Renaissance men as well? Yeah, I mean, men were generally laughed at for using cosmetics but they absolutely did use them and they absolutely did care about particularly putting on weight because there's a lot of emphasis on having shapely legs in the Renaissance for men. <laughs> and so, you a know, fine you, calf. <laughs> exactly, have a, lo- fine, you know, a lovely calf, a lovely kind of thighs and you get these, these tunics that were really high, particularly in the end of the 15th century, so you could really see their legs. Also things like just snippets of information that you get about men. So there's information about how women should keep their breasts small. And lectures done, done by a doctor called Gabriele Fallopio, the, actually the, the um, professor of surgery at Padua University, has this book about how, how you should shape the body to make it more beautiful. And that includes a recipe for keeping small breasts, which he also says can be applied to men's testicles. So they're obviously, you know, even men are minutely observed, right, to, to, to see how they look. But also men, if you look at how these books were used, men often own these beauty books aimed at women and things like baldness cures are underlined by men or how to make the face, stop the face going red after drinking wine, this kind of thing. So men are caring what they, are really caring what they look like, but it's less normalised for men, uh, socially normalised for men to care about their looks. Do we have evidence of how men felt about women wearing makeup? And you mentioned in the book about how perhaps people might feel deceived by sort of seeing a woman thinking she looked one way and actually finding out she doesn't. Is that, is that actually the case? Yeah. So there's a lot of literature about how, I mean, men have this, men in the, in the Renaissance have this 
faith in makeup as being completely transformative. So uh, <laughs> they they talk about, oh my God, you wouldn't marry um, a horse covered in ornaments, or you know why why I mean this is they compare women to horses quite a lot. So why do we get a wife when uh, we can't really see what she looks like? They complain about women spending all their money on makeup and um, spending all their time locked in their chambers making all these strange and exotic cosmetics. They complain about, um, about mainly it's about deception though. There's this idea that women are deceiving men and that you might marry a woman thinking that she's beautiful, but in fact she is ugly, but you can't see that because of her makeup. So they say, if you're going to marry someone, you should go to her house really early in the morning, <laughs> really before she's, before she's had a chance to get made up. But then women kind of respond to this by making makeup that stains the face. So you can wash your face and it looks like you haven't got any makeup on, but in fact you have. (laughs) And also in your book, you mentioned that this was a period when some people sort of began questioning traditional gender roles and and what it actually was to be a woman. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, the 15th and 16th century, and it kind of dies out in the maybe the mid 17th centuries, is a period where people debate femininity quite a lot. And this is often called by the French term Carrel des Femmes, or the woman question in English. And it's the start of a period when women start to write about their abilities and intellect. And the question is, are women necessarily inferior to men? That's the question that they're they're addressing. There's a lot of female rulers at this time as well. I mean, Elizabeth I of England is probably the one who might be best known to people, but there's also a lot of female rulers on the continent. This is a time of repeated wars, and so women are at home. And so people are writing for women, for women patrons. And this brings about a a questioning of, of women's supposed inferiority. And a lot of people argue that actually women are superior to men and that women are women's bodies are better than men, women are calmer, women are more beautiful. Um, and so this all plays plays into this kind of uh, questioning. Alongside this, uh, there's a real obsession with um, gender swapping. So we're familiar with this mainly um, from Shakespeare's plays, things like uh, a lot of the comedies involve men dressing up as women or women dressing up as men or twins. And and, and this was started, uh, interest started in, in the early 16th century in Italy. And then Shakespeare borrowed a lot of this and in turn was from classical uh, literature. So this idea that women, a lot in a lot of the literature like this, the comedy literature, women dress up in men's clothes, are completely thought to be men by everyone. No one says, oh, you're a woman in clothes. And they just go around and they have the freedom that they wouldn't have otherwise. But then... Again, in this literature, what tends to happen is that eventually the women marry. They they, they realise that everyone realises that they're women and they marry and they go back to kind of traditional female roles. But there is this possibility, these possibilities are opening in this period. What is this and how can we test these boundaries? That was Jill Burke, Professor of Renaissance Visual and Material Cultures at the University of Edinburgh. Jill's new book, How to Be a Renaissance Woman, The Untold History of Beauty and Female Creativity, is on sale now, published by Profile in association with The Welcome Collection. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.